0: You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Boness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church or service times or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Well, good morning. Welcome to Riverview Church Online. We're so glad that you're connecting with us today. This is message three of a four part series called Authentic Abundance. And it's looking at John's account in his gospel where Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full or in abundance. And so far, we've seen that this life is Jesus. It is a life that is like abandoned in pursuit of Him as the highest importance, as first priority, where we're positioned to to put him first so that our life may be nourished and grow and be fruitful. Now, Jesus mentions this kind of positioning again in John 15, where he talks about himself being the vine and we being the branches. And we are nourished and we may be fruitful and grow as we remain in him, as we're connected to the vine. Now, this life, in this order, in this priority, going deep with God is a life that is both attractive and fruitful. And we as a church, we want to reach the lost in this town and beyond with the good news about Jesus and about his kingdom. And so we want to go deep with God, both individually and corporately, so that we may be nourished and healthy and attractive for that purpose. If we go deep with God, then we are able to lead other people to the deep places in Christ where they may be refreshed and find life. And if you missed the first couple of episodes of this series, I just recommend you go catch up with them to give yourself context. They're in our Facebook video section, they're on YouTube, and they'll be on your favourite podcast. Just look for the Riverview logo and search for us that way. Now, today, our subject has some difficulties. It can be difficult to hear, maybe difficult to understand, and maybe even difficult to Except I think at times we have an intrinsic dislike of the word discipline. Just the word itself, I don't really like it. It can be difficult for us in a society where people sometimes reject authority and maybe dislike, disregard, or despise rules and restrictions, you know, even if we really know that they're for our good. And we recognise the need for discipline in kids and in adults, and you know, we even recognise it in ourselves if we're being realistic and honest. We still need it and and we are to to varying degrees willing to impose discipline or or desire for it to be imposed upon others but we don't really like the idea of it for ourselves because it can be uncomfortable it can be restrictive it can be painful or hurtful and it can hurt the image of ourselves that we want to project to others I mean who of us myself included really likes to put our hands up and say when we've made a mistake like yep that's me I'll own that Uh, who of us is willing to reveal the ugly kind of flaws in our character and who among us likes it when somebody else points out those ugly flaws or those mistakes in us and yet don't we sometimes love to do it for other people because maybe it removes the focus from ourselves like that speck of dust hiding a plank of wood and i know that is true for myself Uh, i'm ashamed to say at times you know, we have a confused and conflicted idea of discipline and it's because most of our experience of it is carried out in a distortedly and sinfully kind of manner I grew up with a warped understanding of discipline. I learned to fear it because my understanding of it was of sadism and malice and rage and cruelty and shame and pain and violence and and sometimes even for the self-gratification of the perpetrators. I mean, it seemed at times that my mum and my stepdad, in their ferocious discipline, there was a kind of balm to soothe their own torment or appease their own demons. And so I bought this understanding of discipline into my relationship with God, fearing that every painful situation or circumstance in my life was him punishing me. I mean, in my childhood, I was beaten viciously and vindictively and disproportionately. And even though I knew that God was a good father, I couldn't reconcile that with my own personal painful experience. Uh, And so these experiences can lead us to two incorrect Conclusions. When we're immature in faith, we we can carry great misunderstanding of what discipline is, the difference between discipline and punishment. And then this leads to two incorrect conclusions about God. The first is that God is a harsh judge that he he lives to enjoy inflicting pain, says that it's for our good. Uh, And and so either we kind of just reject him and reject religion altogether, chuck it out, or we live in perpetual terror of him. And then everything that we do is aimed to try and appease or please him. And not because we love him or reverently, rightfully fear him, but because we don't want to poke an angry God. And then the, the second way that we misunderstand God is that, that being a good father, being a God of love, means that He will never impose or allow difficult or painful discipline or circumstances, even if we do reference it in Scripture. That, that every painful or full of loss kind of experience that we have is clearly from Satan. That God will have to ultimately somehow try to turn around for our good. Well, yes, He will. And he does. I mean, what the enemy means for harm, God can and will use for good, etc. But but listen, there is much that Satan is responsible for. He is the wolf. He is the thief who wants to to kill and steal and destroy. But Satan has to bow before God. Hallelujah. I mean, do you believe for one minute that God is somehow subservient to Satan, that Satan tells God what to do? Absolutely not. I mean, when we say, with comforting confidence, God is in control, we don't mean apart from where Satan is in control, do we? Uh, some of our devastations, some of our troubled circumstances are the result of Satan's efforts and schemes, and sometimes they are the result of our own choices and actions, our own sin. But if God is ever anything less than completely in control, then he's not God at all. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Now, I would rather have a God who is in control within my loss and my pain and my hurt and actually uses those things for my benefit than a God who kind of wants me to be happy but is powerless to do anything about it. But listen, this morning, God is in control and no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. So, God uses all of Scripture, which is God-breathed, and all of the circumstances surrounding us in every season, even that which is initiated by our poor choices or by Satan's schemes. And he will use that to work together for our good, for teaching, training, correcting, rebuking, ultimately maturing us so that we may access authentic abundance. Now, that is discipline. And these are the tools of discipline that he uses, like a a shepherd's crook to encourage us uh, back onto the path that leads to blessing, that leads to the life in authentic abundance. Listen carefully because you'll need this as we go through today. God is not waiting to pounce upon your failures. He sent Jesus to champion for us, even in our failure, our failure, our failed attempts to love him, our failed attempts to follow him. Even when we were at enmity with him, he sent Jesus for us. What he is working in us through all of this is of such high value that every economy in the world put together could not afford the treasure that God is building in you and for you. Now, discipline is about three things. It's about conditioning, correction, and ultimately comfort. It's not a dirty word. Tarnished can be a dirty word. Sin is a dirty word. Slavery is a dirty word. Hopelessness is a dirty word but discipline is a gift of grace that conditions and polishes what was tarnished that that corrects and trains us out of those sinful habits and their destructiveness and leads us away from and out of slavery to sin and sets us free with our feet on a course of firm hope toward ultimate comfort before us. Now conditioning is a word that's often applied to athletes regarding the hard process of disciplining their bodies training it's about fitness, it's about endurance for the task ahead, for the race to be run, for the game to be played ensuring that we have the fitness and endurance to reach the finishing line. It could also be applied to excellent musicians who rigorously practice for hours on end, training for that muscle memory so that even the most complex of overtures become like second nature. Uh, And it may be a kind of self-imposed discipline or it may be externally imposed like a coach or a tutor or a personal trainer. Now, my brother-in-law, whose name is also Tom, is a personal trainer. I've not hired him. Why? Because I know that it would be punishing And yet I would also know at the same time that it's not Tom trying to punish me like vindictively, but rather that he's trying to help me to train me so that I may be stronger, fitter, healthier and be able to endure. This kind of discipline is not punishment, but it may be punishing. And then there's correction. And we really don't like the word correction uh, unless it's as gentle as a whispered suggestion in our ear. But if no one corrects a toddler who's about to reach into the fire, then that toddler will get a severely scorched hand. If no one corrects my mistakes, then I'm condemned to repeat them. I'm condemned to make those mistakes again. And if nobody calls me out for my poor behavior, I'm likely to continue in that poor behavior all the way to my own destruction and to the damage of those around me. So correction should serve as a warning system that is proportionate to the error or the impending disaster. The gentleness with which you correct is directly linked to the imminence and the scale of the danger. You know there's a difference between telling a child not to put more sweets in their mouth and telling a child not to put deadly nightshade in their mouth. And so God's correction is grace-filled. It is parentally protective. It is a warning system that is entirely proportionate to where we are, to what we are doing, and to the imminence and scale of the danger that we are in. And to ignore that kind of warning would be foolishness. And then ultimately, The the, the conditioning and the correction leads to comfort. Now, discipline is never comfortable, but it leads to comfort and away from disaster. As the Hebrew writer says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That's Hebrews 12, verse 11. And I actually recommend you read that whole chapter. You know, there is no authentic abundance outside of obedience, obedience to the instruction that is there for our good, like boundaries for our safety and our comfort. And the tool for training in obedience is discipline. However, it has to be understood through the lens of grace, through the lens of Jesus and through good fatherhood. Hence, we need to seek him first so that we understand. This lens will become increasingly, uh, exceedingly important as we open this Bible study today. Uh, We're going to be in Leviticus 26. Now, this is a difficult chapter. It's quite a long chapter, so I'm going to summarise some parts rather than reading it and I'm going to break it up into three sections. Section one, Leviticus 26, 1 to 13. It starts with this. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves, and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. So in other words, you you don't need that junk. You, you have the real deal. If somebody offers me, in one hand, a genuine Rolex, and in the other hand, uh, a fake knockoff Rolex, which one do you think i would want to take which would you take now he goes on in verse two to say observe my sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary i am the lord he says again So don't be busy and preoccupied with your own ways and don't pick up the shameful practices of the people around you. Listen and be true to the real deal. Uh, And so in this, there's uh, there's these weighty ifs and thens. He says, verse 3, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, and here comes the then. Then I will, and I summarise verses four and five, send rain in season, the ground will yield crops, trees will yield fruit, and in fact you will have food throughout the year in every season. You won't get hungry, you will enjoy safety, six to eight, I'll grant you peace in the land, safety from beasts and men, from dangerous animals and from conquering armies. You'll be unafraid and you'll experience victory even against overwhelming odds. And he goes on to say, I'll I'll look on you with favour, like I'll make you fruitful, I'll increase your numbers and I will keep my covenant. And I want to read verse 10 fully. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God. I mean, where is that pointing to, church? and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high, safe, secure, satisfied, respected, free, relationship restored. God with us, Emmanuel, that is authentic abundance. But then we get to section two and where section one was about blessing of obedience, now we get to the result of disobedience. And this is 14 to 39 and this is loaded with but ifs. And painful thence. It's a much bigger section, and maybe that would give ground to the thought that God is more about rules and harsh punishment. But please don't lose sight of the perfect completeness uh, of the blessing, the wonderful blessing that has just been mentioned. And also hold in your mind that these responses are due to their failure to the if mentioned in the first section that excludes them from the blissful I will and turns to the painful but if. Verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and carry out these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all of my commands and so violate, break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And again, I'll summarize here. 16 and 17, I'll bring sudden terror, health issues that destroy sight and sap strength, enemies that will steal your produce and bring defeat and rule over you without affection or justice, and you'll be So afraid and on edge that you will run away even when nobody is chasing you. And God says, my face will be against you verses 18 to 20. If that's not enough, really moving on, he says, uh, to cause you to listen, I will punish your sins seven times over, i break down stubborn pride, kind of, I see it like breaking earth, ready for sowing, and, and make life difficult, the sky above like iron, the ground beneath like bronze. And so basically, all of your best efforts will come to nothing, because the bronze-like soil will not yield crops, nor the trees their fruit. This is a direct opposite to the blessing in the first 13 verses, but it continues to be the undoing of the blessing as their behavior continues to move in the opposite direction. Who do you think is doing the undoing here? Is it God or is it the rebellious people? Verse 21 If, after all of that, you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will. Again, summarizing, multiply afflictions as your sins deserve, as your behavior warrants, in other words, as in line with what you are choosing. I'll send wild animals against you. They will rob you of your children. They'll destroy your livestock, kill, steal, destroy. They'll make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. Are you beginning to see some layers here, guys? Like at each point, God is actually restraining himself and restraining the wild beasts and the conquering armies. It's mercy and it is incrementally in response proportional to the level of danger and the level of depravity. So God is trying to grab their attention and reach out to his people, each layer, a desperate plea uh, for the people to yield, to repent, and to find restoration. God wants to bless. Isaiah uh, thirty eighteen says, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. But as we go back to Leviticus 26, it continues in verse 23, If, in spite of these things you do not accept correction, continue in hostility toward me then. And he says, I myself will be hostile towards you, afflict you for your sins seven times over, bring the sword, send the plague, give you into your enemy's hands, food will not be sufficient, eating will not satisfy, and if that's still not enough, following from that. And this is where it starts to sound really horrific. And, and you might be thinking, how on earth could a loving God allow this? But please consider, remember the amount of times, the amount of chances, the development, the progression, uh, the, the discipline that has followed the development of their sin. It's in proportion. Verses 28 to 39, he says, I will be hostile towards you. I myself will punish you for your sins. So no longer is God using their enemies and the wild beasts to pursue them. Now he's in the field. He's doing the pursuing. He's laying waste to the land. And it is so devastating and so dramatic that even those previously evil and vindictive enemies of the Hebrew people in all of their ferocity will stop and say, whoa, that's a bit much and perhaps the most horrific statement here, and I'm so tempted to sidestep this, but it's there. Verse 29, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I know you're thinking, what the heck? Like, how is that possible? How do we see a good God in that but listen, this is not here a reference to a measure of God's judgment. It's actually a comment, a God's comment, firstly, on the depravity of the societies surrounding them that the Hebrews are assimilating with. That They're taking on their grotesque practices that God has expressly forbidden, and they're worshipping their gods. All around ancient Israel were people groups who practiced horrendous kind of child sacrifice, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Ammonites, the Edomites and in the worship of these foreign gods like Baal and Molech. And so secondly, it's a comment of the depravity, the utter depravity of the Hebrew people who've turned their backs on God to these false gods and these simple, evil, highly forbidden practices. Uh, so it's a comment on their the scale and magnitude of their sin and their behavior, and that demands a comprehensive discipline, uh, and, and also kind of in response to their desperation to cling to their sinful ways, no matter what the cost, rather than turn back to God. This is their response to the previous good calls back to holiness, back to safety, back to the promise and back to the blessing. So this is not God's retribution But his anger does surely follow their behaviour and depravity, as surely it should. We would be angry at child sacrifice ourselves. Surely God would be so much more. So this actually serves to reveal the measure, the restraint and the compassion within those first layers of discipline. And even after this, there's still a precious promise in this chapter, a massive gleaming promise hope-filled, grace-filled, but if, because God does not wish that any should perish. So section three is about bright hope in verses 40 to 46. I'll read some of this. But if they will confess their sins, their unfaithfulness, their hostility towards me, when they are humbled and pay for their sin, remember that they don't pay for their sin, but Jesus will eventually come and pay for their sin and us. He says, "I will remember my covenant with Jacob, with Isaac, with Abraham. I will remember the land when the enemies when the land of enemies uh sorry when in the land of enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them. I will not destroy them completely. I will not break my covenant with them. I am the Lord, their God now sadly." despite this promise and the scale of blessing in verses 1 to 13, this whole warning of 14 to 39 becomes the historical narrative of the people of Judah and Israel that we see played out throughout the Old Testament and really clearly in the book of Jeremiah. I mean, we love Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, don't we? For I know the plans I have for you, plan, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. But there are twenty eight chapters and ten verses in Jeremiah before that, and there are twenty three chapters and twenty one verses after that. That firstly warn of this impending doom, and then secondly describe in detail the actual events outworking in the nation of what God warned about in Leviticus 26, culminating in the people losing their land and being led away in exile to Babylon. In fact, the promise of 2911 is a promise forward for 70 years after that exile, when God will bring them back to the land, bring the remnant back. And ultimately, that promise is a promise forward to the promise of Jesus, I mean, how gracious that God still intends to keep his side of the deal. I will put my dwelling place among you. I will walk among you and be your God and you'll be my people. And he actualizes that in Jesus. You know, we need to stop looking for God's plans to prosper and not harm us like it's about lots of money and no suffering for the believer. It is the promise of Jesus. Those plans are already revealed and fully realized in him. And that is authentic abundance. It is in Jesus. Look at this. The descendant of these people, the offspring of Judah, the child of Bethlehem, of David's line, the son of Mary, God's own son. He lives out our side of that covenant that we kept breaking. So God fulfills Both parts of the covenant, and we walk in the blessing because of that. He takes the punishment for sin upon himself. He lays down his own life as a sacrifice for sin so that sin does not lay waste to us. So, what we as believers are left with in our hardships and in our sufferings and in our painful uh, circumstances is not like used not as a punishment, but for correction and conditioning for our good, which is ultimately leading to comfort in fullness of life. Whether these circumstances are caused by Satan's schemes or the consequences of our own actions, it is not punishment. Now it is discipline that God is using. So as I bring this together, I really want you to know two things. Firstly, discipline is an act of love. It it may hurt but it is an act of love. It may produce discomfort, but it leads to comfort and life in abundance. Discipline that is easy isn't actually discipline at all. It has no benefit. It would leave us exactly where we are in our sin and in our shame. Uh, It's kind of like leaving a child to play on a cliff edge. It's unloving. It's uncaring. But God loves and cares for us enough to call us to repent, to literally turn back to him and to the blessing that he carries. Proverbs 3, 11, 12 says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. Know this this morning, that God delights in you. No good parent sets out to punish, like vindictively and pain cravingly. But equally, no good parent ignores bad or dangerous behavior. No good parent will stand by idly while their child burns towards destruction. And the second thing is that discipline leads to life. A good parent will set out to, tra- to train, not to train, to train and correct for the benefit, for the health, for the life, for the joy, and for the fulfillment of their child. And so Jesus is the way. The truth and the life. And so discipline leads to him, to full life, unbound joy, deep satisfaction, where our harvest barns will be full all year round. Discipline is never comfortable, but it should always lead towards healing, comfort. And God says, Comfort, oh, comfort my people. Correction is for our good. It may bring sorrow, but sorrow. The births beautiful, life-giving purpose, and that is leading to repentance. Listen to this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. Now, wouldn't you love to find that you, you have a road that leaves regret behind today? You know, he may wound, but his wounds are for healing. And he is the one who binds and heals our wounds. Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So don't despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up, he injures, but his hands also heal. That's Job 5, 17 and 18. Discipline, I'm really wrapping this up now, discipline leads to healing. It leads to restoration. It leads to fulfillment. It leads to enjoyment. It leads to spiritual prosperity and peace. It leads to freedom. It leads to life and life in all its fullness. God is training us. Authentic life, authentic abundant life is the result of living freedom well as we remain in him and as we let him nourish and prune us so that we may be healthy and fruitful and we are safe in his hands. The rebuke of a friend is a kindness and what a friend we have in Jesus. Amen.